Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Power of Privilege and Allyship podcast. My name is Funke Abimbola, and I'm a partner at a global organizational consulting firm delivering DEI solutions to my clients across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And by DEI, I do, of course, mean diversity, equity, and inclusion. In a former life, I was a corporate lawyer, and following that, I spent a decade working as a C-suite leader across the global pharmaceutical industry. And my co-host today is, of course, my son, Max. Yes. So hi, everybody. My name is Max Abimbola, and I am just about to start my third year of computer science at Newcastle University. And today, Max and I are really, really excited to be interviewing a very, very dear friend of ours, Mazzy Odu. Mazzy, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast with yourself and also with you, Max. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, first of all, obviously, we've known you. We've known you for very many, many, many years. We've danced together. We've enjoyed. We've all sorts. But today, I really wanted to give our listeners an idea about you and why you're so amazing. So if you could please just tell us a bit more about your career today. Thank you so much for that question. So talking about my career today, I think if it was a football analogy, it's definitely been a game of two halves. First half of my career, I worked in marketing communications. First in the United Kingdom, I was um, in contractual um, work in the city of London. And then latterly, in 2008, I took rather dramatic plunge of taking these marketing communication skills to Nigeria. And, you know, for context, I'm neither Nigerian or nor at the time, spoiler alert, was married to a Nigerian. I did have a number of friends. So in terms of sort of um, being in a country where I was going to be technically a cultural minority, I felt ready to participate in that and not feel that that would make me feel othered in the work context. And so I worked in marketing communications firstly for Shanik Bank. And there I was working in the brand communications department, heading comms for the subsidiaries and by subsidiaries, Oceanic had a presence at the time in three other African countries. And I was sort of doing all the marketing communications. So that's communicating the bank, the bank's um, service offerings, its accounts, its different offerings for corporates, for corporate clients. And then when I came back to Nigeria in 2015, after I got married to a Nigerian, I returned to that area, this time working for UBA, which is another very large bank in Nigeria that has a huge Pan-African presence. So at the time when I was working, there were 22 subsidiaries. And again, I was in this space where I was communicating the messaging for a Nigerian bank, by the bank that wanted to very much position itself as a Pan-African driven and solutions-based bank. In terms of my own cultural heritage, because I'm Ugandan by descent, but at the same time I was living, working in Nigeria, by this point married to Nigerian, I could understand the nuances and contexts of the location I found myself in Western Africa. That's where sort of my value add, so to speak, was for the corporation. And it was a really exciting role because I also got to um, organize their events, which played to my, my side love of music. So, you know, we used to have the most amazing events, WizKid, all of the big Nigerian Afrobeat stars at some point or another were booked and played for our events. So, that was a great bonus <laughs> to have in my job spec. 
And then lastly, so my second half of my career, which was always sort of bubbling under because I had done some freelance writing and I'd actually published after my master's in in London, where I was at the London School of Economics, and I did a master's in international relations, I'd, I'd published a Christian book called Heaven in Your Handbag. So writing and creative writing and communicating in book format was very much sort of there. I had a blog, food blog, when I was in London called Gastrotastic, which premise was writing um, recipes and recipe ideas, but all, you know, that you could essentially buy with £10. So the idea was sort of the boundary and constraint, but also making it exquisite. So writing was very much in the background, so to speak. After I came to Nigeria and I was working for UBA, I got pregnant. And it was very much this time I started thinking, how can I create a career that would allow me to mother fully without compromising corporations and their demands? And at the same time, utilize my skill set, which is when I went full on into writing. So I'm now, I would describe myself as a writer and editor and curator working within predominantly design jewellery and fashion space, both here in Africa and also globally. And I've been really fortunate to work with these amazing communications companies and publications. So in Nigeria, I was the inaugural editor at large, Bella Niger Style, which is the largest online lifestyle platform in Africa in terms of numbers and unique visits and such. And which was really great because they were now expanding their Bella Niger offering to have a sort of style platform, which was fashion and design and luxury led, not just luxury, but also mastige as well. And then afterwards, lastly, I started freelancing and writing for a number of publications. So bylines have been everything from US Vogue, British Vogue, Vanity Fair, Wallpaper. And again, my sort of raison d'etre, which kind of, if I think about it, going back to my football analogy, really does posit in also my location game of two hearts because I previously lived in the UK and I live in Africa, is I do do a lot of championing African luxury excellence. I have an online platform as well, Magnus Oculus, and I've been very pleased to have highlighted and amplified the story of three subsequent LVMH finalists, um, one Walmart Prize winner, one CFDA winner, they're all from the African continent, but their first deep dive long form article was written by myself. So yeah, so that's the um, where we are so far. And as I said, it's been an adventure. There's definitely a narrative arc, which is storytelling, championing excellence, and very much seizing with pan-African objectives. It's so obvious that you are a storyteller, even the way that you described your, your career to date why you chose your career path, you know, how it's all evolved. The game of two halves, I love it. That narrative and storytelling is just so, so powerful, Mercy. And I'd love, though, to get a sense of the challenges you've had to overcome, Mercy, to get to where you are, because it always sounds so straightforward, doesn't it, when we tell our story. What challenges have you had to overcome? And importantly, how have you overcome them? Well, you know, challenges is a fantastic way to describe them because most people think about it being a problem that needs to be solved, the career dino rod out. And I would definitely say one of the challenges of coming into the space where you're writing about fashion design is, you know, to use the Gen Z parlance max as having the receipt. So a lot of people will be like, oh, hang on a minute. 
we look at your CV, we don't see a long, lengthy stint at XYZ Publication West. We also, and this is again speaking to, you know, equity and diversity and inclusion, there's also a little bit of incredulity that you may well be able to connect with younger audiences and younger readers. A lot of commissioning editors might be a little bit bearish about that. And rightly so, because with digital platforms, it's all about the numbers. And so that's been a challenge. And one of my, um, however, comment, I would say, is always speaking to the story. So I've interviewed people at the beginning of their careers. I've interviewed people who are having retrospectives now in London at huge you know, institutions and everything in between. And I always seek to listen to that individual story. So to speak to that, when you do listen to the individual story, when you do convey it in an article, in a piece, people will resonate with that. From the publication's perspective, people will read it. From the luxury house or designer or jeweler or fashion designer, when there's now an increase or buyers now wanting to know more about them or retailers wanting to know about them. And when they ask me, where did you first read about us? It's through a piece that I've written and I know I've conveyed that. So the big challenge, I think, is to um, understand why people might have reservations about engaging with you, about you engaging with their brand, and to make them feel very comfortable, make them feel listening and that you are going to directly share their story, but also share their story in their authentic voice. It's so cool now being able to listen and hear about all the different things that you've done, the things that you've been involved in. Because I remember when I was younger and I was so amazed that my auntie was writing a book. I remember when you were writing that book and it was coming out, I was like, what? No way, auntie, like all these kinds of things. And it's so amazing to see and to hear you talk about these things now that I'm older and I can have a a deeper understanding about it. So it's, it's just so cool to hear that. No, thank you. And it's really interesting, again, speaking to sort of the book, it was a totally different genre. It was um, a Christian book. But again, speaking to my you know, desire always to tell a story to a wider possible audience, I used to sort of say it was for, you know, the Manolo Blahnik, Cristal Champagne, Quaffing, Christo, who also likes a bit of hip-hop, because that's who I was then. Um, <laughs> still like hip-hop like campaign maybe moved on with my shoe brand game but i think it's also again about sort of engaging people and you know to, you know to use the analogy having as a wide reach as possible and making stories accessible and exciting no of course it's, it's amazing and and next what i really wanted to delve into is you spoke earlier about how you really wanted to make sure that although you were switching your career and often when that happens, you really have to focus, you have to knuckle down. You still want to be a very present mother. So now what I really wanted to understand is how is it that your day looks like every day, like at work? What does it look like when you wake up in the morning? Okay, that's a really good question. What does your day look like? So contrary to sex and security, I'm not lolling about on my bed, sort of tip-tapping on an iPad or whatever. And just, you know, pouring myself a cosmopolitan come 6 p.m. It starts very early. Obviously, my, my, my daughter is four years old now, so she goes to preschool. Um, she's at school between 8 and 1. And I tend to schedule my day, but 8 and 1 is when I have any Zoom interviews. So if I'm interviewing a designer or, or you know, creative, I will interview them in those morning hours. And that then allows me to then do the school pickup. And in the afternoons, 
transcribe whatever I'm writing. If I don't have interviews in the morning, I'll use the morning for research. I'm a big DM slider, so even with contributing editors. So it's again about looking at that publication, what they're interested in, what kind of creatives they're profiling, and then sort of tailoring my pitches. So you write a pitch document if you're wanting to write for, say, like some big you know, international glossies. So write my pitch document to reflect that um, publications needs, wants their target market, which is where all my Marcom's work in banking is invaluable because in that section, if you're not hitting the mark of communicating to your target market, forget about it. It doesn't matter. So I think as a result, a lot of my pitch, my pitch presentations, a lot of commissioning editors have said, gosh, yours are so sort of precise. They're not full of flowery language. You're not, you're not, you're not big on romance and you really understand what we then have to digest before we commission. And so once my daughter goes to bed and sort of, you know, we've done our afternoon, evening regime, I will then often get back on Zooms because if I'm, say, writing, I mean, I recently interviewed on Jacqueline Rabin and she's a jewellery artist based in Los Angeles. So someone like that, you're going to probably interview them in the evening. So that's when I sort of the other part of my day commences. So West Coast America, East Coast America, those, those things will be done then. And then I normally go to bed at, say, 10, 30, 11, sometimes a little bit later. But I do try and keep the hours same because the whole idea is definitely to have work-life balance and not to overstretch oneself and to the point that, you know, you don't give your best in both sectors of your life, both your personal life and your professional life. Now, that sounds amazing. And I love the way that you're able to blend different things you know try and be flexible around your daughter catching different time zones it's wonderful what you also say Mazzy about how they've picked up on the fact that when you're pitching you are really succinct with your use of language as well there's no flowery language I think that's probably the bane of so many people's lives is when people Use more words than is necessary. I really do think that. And I think even as a writer, you're, the whole point is to communicate clearly. And you can you know, end up in verbiage where you lose people, you lose your audience. People sort of may switch off, eyes glaze over. And I'm also very respectful of people's time because I have to be hugely efficient with my own. So I'm not going to write you a thesis for a pitch presentation, it's literally going to be four paragraphs with, you know, sort of bylines of other places I've written that are similar to that publication, so they're comfortable with you. And I think that's something that a lot of writers might get bogged down with, is thinking, oh my goodness, the pitch has to sound like the completed article, which is impossible, because obviously, you know, you need to interview that person or speak to that person, or it's going to be like that. You have to be really respectful of time which I think is something that a lot of people within the creative industries, there's this perception that everyone's got loads of time, but we don't. I mean, there's finite time even to um, create the pieces that you're making. There's finite time for these people to consume them. Um, there's finite time people have to scroll and read your article or your web post or anything like that. So I'm always very mindful of being succinct and clear and also um adding a little bit of excitement and magic, you know, so when people do read a piece by me, they're somewhat inspired or 
ignited or prompted to some kind of action. No, I love that. That's absolutely brilliant. And and respect for people's time is is sadly something I don't see from enough people these days. Uh, you know, there's just this sense that time is to be taken for granted. Um, it's something that I I get very, very annoyed by, but I digress. That's not the purpose uh, of this conversation, Mercy. The, the main hub and the main meat behind the, these podcast discussion is, of course, uh, privilege, allyship, diversity and inclusion. Mercy, I'd love to get a sense from you of what your understanding is both of the word privilege and then also allyship. Thank you so much for that question. So I am going to be very sort of dictionary.com-tastic, but then expand it to my own personal experience. So, you know, when one thinks about privilege, privilege is literally having a special right or an advantage. And I'm happy you know, to go on air on your podcast and own my privilege, even though technically if someone looked at me, they'd see black woman, I think, oh, she's sort of, you know, in um, category unprivileged. But I have been privately educated. I have family and, you know, it's, you know, many generations of going to university, professionals at the very, very highest level. So I know that my privilege, which is based on both educational and socioeconomic advantages, is extremely real. And it certainly allowed me to navigate the United Kingdom in a very different way to many of my fellow Black females who I knew. It also allowed me to navigate Nigeria in a very different way because I am part of technically the socioeconomic elites. So for me, in light of that, it's to really own your privilege and see how you can then open the door for others. So as a Black woman, but who comes from an educationally socioeconomic upper tier, it's to look out for talented people, certainly in the writing space. I have my own platform called Magnus Oculus. And when I've had interns, I've been very keen on getting, for example, young Nigerians who might not necessarily come from a wealthy home or have traveled internationally excessively. Um, when I was at Bella Niger Style, a lot of the staff hadn't necessarily traveled to Europe, to America, or Asia. And I made a real point of when I could see there was talent of sharing my own experiences, sharing my own exposure, helping them on their journeys of discovery, you know, sending them resources. And I think that's how I use my privilege. And I'm very aware of it. And I think it's something that we have a lot of privilege washing within the Black community where you will see people maybe downplaying these very real advantages of if you have gone to a good school, if you grew up in a nice neighborhood, if you didn't grow up in an estate, you are privileged. So I think it's really important for there to be nuance in the discussion, certainly in the global north and also here in the global south. I'm sitting here in Lagos, but I'm sitting in a house that you know, has a spare backup generator, has all these things that other people who might be wanting to write amazing pieces on the you know, Nigerian luxury space, but because they don't have data or they don't have the internet, they can't participate. So that's where they can come and say, work with me and my, I have a work, uh, shared office space that I work out of in Ikui sometimes. And that's where they can meet me there and work where the Wi-Fi is going to be working and there's going to be a desk and everything's going to be 
sort of more conducive to you producing work. So that's my notion of privilege. And I think it's really important that those of us, you know, who might visually not look like we're privileged are very vocal and aware of it. So um, when I think about allyship, I also think about countries and peoples who might not necessarily be part of the conversation. So within the creative um, industries, we hear a lot from, say, Nigeria and, say, from Ghana. Also, they have big diasporas in the global north. But I'm always very keen to also highlight jewellery artists like, say, Margot Wong, who is based in Bujumbura in Burundi, or someone like Giamini, who is from a smaller ethnic group in Kenya. Um, so it's not the Kalenjins or the Maasai. So also expanding people's notions of amazing craft, amazing creativity that's coming from other smaller parts of the African continent. And I think that's where allyship can come in. You're, I'm not a stakeholder, I'm not from those countries, but I, by choosing actively to see them and inviting others to see them, others to engage with them, we are becoming each other's allies and not expanding, expanding the participation, which I think is ultimately what inclusion is about. It's expanding participation. It's not necessarily saying, oh, these people are wretched of the earth and need to participate. These people are amazing. And for whatever structural or economic or social or educational barriers, they haven't been invited to the proverbial party. No, that's fantastic. And it's so, I love how you've really highlighted that privilege doesn't have to be something that you're ashamed of or that you have to be ashamed about, you know? It can be such an amazing tool to help others. And that's really what you've been doing and everything that you've been saying and in making sure that people from everywhere in the diaspora are getting opportunities from different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's just amazing to see. So thank you for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Max. And you know, I'm very, very keen, again, speaking to allyship, to look for other people to work with. I definitely don't have Messiah complex. I don't want to be the only one in the room championing these courses. I am always, I'm I am a notorious DM slider. I slide into people's DMs on LinkedIn, Instagram, and I'll just say, oh, I like what you're doing. Should we set up a Zoom? And in a way, a lot of the work I have received has been from seeking other allies, finding other like-minded individuals, finding people on similar wavelengths. They don't necessarily need to have had exactly the same background as me, but we can have the same intention, but be coming from different pathways. We're all heading to the same destination. Fantastic. I love that. The DM slider. Is that in your CV or are you just going to keep that one? Uh... I think maybe DM slider can be my additional skills, you know, fluidity <laughs> DM sliding. But, but of, on your of, 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 of the of the non-racy kind, case yes. the caveat, put the caveat in. <laughs> it's okay. I'll endorse it if you put it on your LinkedIn. No worries, no worries. And for my final question, I would like to just ask, why is it that diversity and inclusion are important to you? You've made it very clear that you do it, but why is it that it's important to you? So why is diversity and inclusion important to me? Well, you know, I'm a bit of an omnivore in life, full stop. I like different sorts of culture. I like different sorts of food. I like different sorts of music. So I think in every space, we all benefit from variety. And diversity is about celebrating variety. Um, when you live in a monochromatic or a monocultural 
or a mono-experiential world, you don't get to see the full, the full range, the full kaleidoscope of people, places, experiences. And so for me, that's why diversity is important. It's almost evangelizing to those who might be in their comfort zone for whatever reason, whether it's lived experience, whether it's maybe fear and trepidation as well. Um, especially, you know, I speak to my own experience as a second career person. Sometimes that can also make people feel, oh, I'm already ticking that box. What is this diversity box? A bit too much. I can only take one thing at a time. But I think diversity in whatever sector we are experiencing that diversity always enriches us. And in terms of inclusion, I don't think and that we can really call ourselves a civilized world if we don't include and invite everybody to fully participate in it. Um, we can all hang our heads in collective shame. And for me, inclusion is also about seeing, seeing difference, not being afraid of difference, asking questions. Um, if you don't understand where that person's coming from, I mean, it can be as minor as how do you pronounce your name? Is it Mazzy, like pizza? So that Mazzy, or, you know, I've seen that a lot in Italy and I can correct them. So it could be something as minor, but even in that, it's major because you're including that person. You're not now anglicizing my name and saying, can I call you Marilyn? Because I just can't get my head around the two Zs that are not pizza. So I think inclusion is about letting everybody feel seen, valued, and celebrated. And for me, a world that doesn't do that isn't a world worth living in. That's just wonderful. Honestly, I love your your choice of words. The way you describe that is so, so evocative of what it actually means. You know, you've really captured the essence of, of why diversity and inclusion is so important. And I really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about privilege and allyship also, Mazzy. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, um, Funke. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Max, it's been an absolute joy to be on your podcast and, you know, to add my voice to a chorus of amazing, amazing guests. Thank you. And with that, lovely listeners, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, another wonderful uh, interview, part of our Summer of Inspiration series. We really, really did want to have Mazzy be featured as one of our inspiring leaders as part of this series. And Max and I look forward very much indeed to yet another inspiring conversation with a wonderful leader just like Mazzy. Thanks very much, everyone, and goodbye for now. <laughs>